0: good morning as i was thinking of the first song we've sung amazing grace it's been sung for many many years this church has been around a while i wonder how many times it's been sung in this very room many of you may know the story of john newton a slave trader horribly immoral man in his youth and in his early adulthood who the lord broke and miraculously saved what you may not know and coming on the heels of Mother's Day is that he credits much of the Lord's work in his life to his mother. The mother who died when he was only seven years old. Perhaps it was because she was so sickly and knew of her impending death that she poured out her life to minister to her young, son, young and only son, John. Helping him to memorize scripture to learn theological truths ingrained through catechisms. In fact, he reflects back upon that and says that we were not for his mother, and he's certain that it is because of his mother, that the Lord used that early work to change his life and to plant within him the seeds that God would ultimately grow and cause to bear fruit and salvation in his life. Sometimes it's helpful to remember those stories because... No matter how little time you have with someone, no matter how little influence you may think you have, it is important that we continue to share the gospel, to minister, to follow and imitate the pattern of Christ, never knowing the fruit that it will one day reap. There's many out sick this morning. Uh, want us to continue, please, lifting up Deanne as she is uh, struggling, struggling, uh, Deanne Baker, thankful that Keith, I know it's a struggle for him to join us, but what a joy it is to have him with us this morning, but be praying for Deanne, how we can minister to her. There's so many others, you can look around, you know who they are, Uh, the Chadwicks, who some of you know have uh, had sickness running in their family, Texas morning from Andy, and Tina's sick, we've got others who are out sick today, my own family is noticeably absent, (laughs) same type of thing, so just be lifting one another up in prayer. Uh, Call, write notes, encourage one another, be the body of Christ. Well, we will continue our study this morning through the Gospel of Matthew. Concluding chapter 14, as we move into chapter 15. You know, we have some interesting traditions, culturally, maybe even religiously. For example, why do we blow candles out on a cake? You ever thought about that? Why do we throw away perfectly good money into a fountain of water or a well? Do we really trust a groundhog to predict the weather in February? Why do we make fun of fruitcake? I mean, it's good. Why do we smash faces and cake and cake and faces at events like weddings? Now these traditions, for the most part, are harmless. In fact, many of them are quite humorous, especially the more you think about them. Traditions exist almost everywhere, whether in business, family, culture, certainly in the church. And while some traditions are commanded, such as remembering the Lord's Supper or baptism, there are other traditions that persons have created. And while not necessarily bad at all, there does exist a danger that tradition can interfere with both our obedience and our love for the Lord. This morning we will see firsthand this danger exposed. As the popularity and honestly the compassion of Christ leads to confrontation with the Jewish religious establishment. As we observe this confrontation with religious leaders this morning we'll be presented with Jesus' answer For the legalism that so easily creeps in with tradition that dampens our love for God. So if you would, read along with me as I read this section from Matthew 14, beginning down in verse 34 through the first nine verses of chapter 15. Matthew writes, When they had crossed over, that is the Sea of Galilee, they came to land at Gennesaret, And when the men men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe, the tassels of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to him from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the precepts of men. Pray with me as we begin our study this morning. Father, we do want to lift up those who are not with us this morning who are suffering, who are sick. Pray that you would provide healing and relief. Father, encourage us in their absence to to be motivated to to care, to reach out, to demonstrate the compassion of Christ to those around us. Father, thank you for the opportunities that are presented to us, that we may have opportunities to imitate you, to follow your example. Father, as we look this morning at these words, we have ears to hear. Father, we're going to need glasses this morning to help with the myopia, the short-sightedness that so easily creeps in that makes it so hard to see where traditions and habits that we have built have created barriers in our love for you, have dampened the fire of our affection. So Father, help us to see that. May the examples that we see from Scripture help to create within us a sensitivity and awareness to where these exist. And help us be encouraged and motivated to love you more and to obey you in every way we pray this in your name amen in these verses that we just read we really see three movements if you will first we have the appearance of Jesus on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee there at the end of chapter 14 It's here that the context for the coming opposition is laid out as well as a continued emphasis on the compassionate ministry of Christ. Next, at the beginning of chapter 15, we see the arrival and the accusation of the religious leaders. This is followed up quickly. And thirdly, by the answer Jesus provides which combats the legalism of tradition and teaches us once more Once again, what true worship entails. It gives us the answer to legalism, to tradition that has caused our hearts to grow cold. Let's look first at verses 34 through 36 as we close out chapter 14 and the appearance of Jesus at Gennesaret. As these three Verses close out, chapter 14, Jesus appears on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee in the area of Gennesaret, a well-populated, a well-known area. In fact, the Sea of Galilee was even referred to as the Sea of Gennesaret at times. It appears that after having appeared to them in the night and calming the wind and the waves, after the interaction with Peter, after walking upon the water, that they continued rowing to the other side. Can't help but wonder if the disciples weren't thinking back to what we studied in chapter eight and were hoping Jesus would go ahead and just help them get to the other side without the extra rowing, they were already exhausted. But The fact that they appear in the morning and people recognize them seems to indicate that this time they had to keep laboring, although not against the wind. And so the disciples and Jesus continued rowing throughout the rest of the night, arriving probably in the early morning hours running the ship up onto the shore and climbing out, they were immediately recognized. The fame and the power of Christ is growing. No storm can subdue him. His compassion is immense and illness flees before him. And the people know this. And so they began to send word. They began to go into all the regions saying, quick, come, Christ is here. And it says, all who were sick in the surrounding area came and were brought to Jesus so that He would heal them. Recalling the healing of the woman in Matthew 9 who simply sought to touch the hem of His cloak, the crowds now ask the same. Demonstrating in some way the faith that she had, begging that this multitude of persons might be healed. Jesus granted their request so that all who simply touched the fringes, the tassels of His cloak experienced instant healing. What is made abundantly clear from the beginning to the end of chapters 14 and 15 is the compassion of Christ. The compassion that He first verbalized there at the end of chapter 9 as He looked out over Jerusalem. Looked at a people who were distressed and dispirited. People who We're like sheep without a shepherd. Seeing their pain and suffering, Jesus ministers to them, body and soul. Knowing that the ultimate source of this pain and this suffering is sin and the effects of the curse, He provides this temporary relief from the effects of the curse, healing all who are sick. And we've talked about this before, but the reason that Jesus does this is not merely to meet a felt need As real as that need is, as painful as that need is, but he does it to validate and verify that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, how does the healing do this? Because it temporarily, in a small way, begins to roll back the effects of the curse, giving hope and promise to what the kingdom of God entails. And so he provides this relief. He validates the claim that the kingdom of God has drawn near. And in so doing, Jesus provides us with a reminder of what true religion does. It shows compassion. It cares, as James says, for the orphan and the widow. It provides temporary relief as a means of pointing to the lasting relief that can be found in becoming citizens of the kingdom of God. They're never decoupled from one another. It's always both and. This is one of the reasons, especially as we've been in this section, we have emphasized the need to be active in imitating Christ, in showing compassion and caring for those who are hurting around us. Never decoupling that from the gospel and the reason why and the motivation for why we do these things. But there is a necessity to demonstrate in a small way the hope and the promise of the kingdom of God where sin, sickness, sadness and suffering are done away with. We preach the hope of the gospel while ministering to those who are hurting. Now, I want to confess something this morning. I failed miserably at this this week. While traveling on the West Coast, I was sitting outside eating dinner. Someone walked by who was clearly homeless. They were friendly. They didn't harass me, didn't ask for money or food. They simply asked how my evening was going. And I engaged them. I didn't ignore them. Talked briefly, but I was tired. It had been a long day. I was thankful just to sit quietly outside on that patio. But within a couple of minutes, my conscience was bothering me. Here I was with more food than I could finish, and I couldn't be bothered to offer some and share the gospel. It doesn't really get more selfish or self-centered than that. I finished eating as fast as I could. I prepared the leftovers. I spent the next 20 minutes trying to find them. I couldn't. I had to repent. I had to confess my failure and my self-centeredness. Now what I'm confident of, is because the Lord uses these situations, what I'm confident of is that I'll be quicker to respond the next time. I'll be ready to respond to the opportunity, but I'm still sad over this opportunity, this missed opportunity, and that it took my failure to create this sensitivity, to initiate preaching Christ. It was a painful reminder this week of how far I have to go. But I think we all need these reminders. Not to miss the opportunities the Lord puts in front of us. In fact, the irony is that last week as we preached, we talked about how it is when we are tired and exhausted like those disciples were in the boat that that is the moment we seem to be tested. And so to beware, to be ready. But we need to imitate Christ, both his life and his doctrine and his teaching. This appearing of Christ on the Sea of Gennesaret on the northwestern shore, and the recognition of who he was illustrates the growing influence and popularity of his ministry. Word had spread all the way down to Jerusalem, it spread. And it upset the religious establishment. The popularity and ministry of Jesus we see at the end of chapter 14 had not only reached the ears of Herod, like we saw at the beginning of verse 14, but now it has gone down to Jerusalem and it is upsetting the religious leaders who are there. And so what do they do? They send a crack delegation, a special forces team of religious rulers and scholars to deal with this Jesus. In verses one through two of chapter 15, we transition to the arrival and the accusation of these religious leaders. This arrival highlights the growing antagonism amongst the religious establishment toward Jesus. Chapter 15 opens with then, when? Well, then, then during the healing of hundreds, if not thousands, they arrive. As Chrysostom notes, when he had worked thousands of signs, when he had healed the sick with the touch of his tassel, it is for this reason the evangelist, that is Matthew, indicates the time, so that he might show their unspeakable wickedness, and that it is second to none. The local scribes and Pharisees had not been able to handle this disturber of the peace, so the religious leaders at Jerusalem have sent in the big guns. Those who are expected to deal quickly and decisively. To deal a blow to the popularity and the ministry of Jesus. Now you have to ask why. Why at this point? Certainly this is within the plan of God. The working of God. The transition in the ministry that culminates in the cross. But why were they so upset? What was it that antagonized them so much? Well, it's really pretty simple. It's the same fear that drives so many people today. It was fear of losing power and influence and losing wealth and money. The power and influence they had over the people to manipulate them, to build off of their backs. And note the cleverness, when they arrive, they do not attack Jesus directly, but as we've seen a couple of other times, the religious leaders try to undermine the message and ministry of Christ, how? By pointing to his disciples. Now let's also ask, why would they do this? Why go after the disciples and not Jesus directly? I mean, they're there to disrupt Jesus, not to disrupt the disciples. What happened to cutting off the head of the snake? That's actually very clever, and here's why. This is why I believe they do this. No matter how Jesus responds, no matter what he says to their accusation, to their frontal assault, the disciples, those who follow him, are the manifestation and the representation of his ministry. Whatever else he might say, if the disciples are an unruly and ungodly bunch, then surely this is the tenor and the merit of his teaching. These religious leaders expected to undermine the ministry of Jesus and discourage others from following him by pointing to an undisciplined and impure life amongst the disciples. Because then they could say, see, this is what he really teaches. This is the outworking following that Jesus now they're not completely wrong are they if they can point to ungodly and immoral lifestyles among the disciples then why should anyone take the message of Jesus seriously people ask the same question today don't they when they look at the lives of those who claim to be Christians Many are turned off by the character and the nature of those who say they follow Christ. And you understand, we're not talking about the natural rejection of light by those living in darkness. No, we're talking about those who live contrary to the claims of Christ. We're talking about the need to live in such a way that we are salt in this world and a light set upon a hill shining before men. Peter describes in more detail what this looks like in 1st Peter chapter 2. In fact, turn there with me. You may want to turn there with me as we read. In 1st Peter chapter 2 verses 11 through 17 is he elaborates and really puts meat on the bones and colors in the picture for us on what does it look like to be a faithful disciple to avoid bringing shame upon Christ. In verse 11 we read, "Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evil doers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors is sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is not talking about perfection. We're talking about spiritual discipline, faithfulness, the pursuit of godliness, and when you do sin, the repentance over it, demonstrating that life that is being conformed day by day, moment by moment into the image of Christ. We're talking about submitting ourselves, as Paul says in Galatians, to the law of Christ, not living according to our own desires. Not waking up and saying, What do I want to do today? but waking up and saying, What can I do that brings God glory today? What can I do that pleases the Lord today? What can I do to show the Lord that I love him? This is why we are continually exhorted to be imitators of Christ, to follow his example. And like Paul, to follow the example of other faithful believers insofar as they imitate Christ. We do not want our lives to be a hindrance or an obstacle to the gospel of Christ Jesus. How are you doing in this area? Is your life such that others are drawn to Christ? Do they see your love for Christ and what you do? Do you interact with people enough for them to see the love of Christ? When people reject you, is it because of your sinfulness or because they hate the light? One thing we are very good at, especially in our culture, is the victim complex. But do not automatically assume that when you are persecuted, it is for righteousness' sake. Instead, make certain that it is for righteousness' sake. Have you kept your behavior excellent among unbelievers so that the reason they persecuted you, the reason that you're suffering, is out of obedience? Well, the plan of these religious leaders is not that bad. Attack the behavior in the lives of the disciples and undermine the ministry of Jesus Christ. So, where do they start? What great weakness do these religious leaders perceive in the ministry of Christ displayed in the lives of the disciples? What great sin are they committing that will undermine the message of repentance and the kingdom of heaven? The disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. You have to appreciate the irony, almost the humor. Here Jesus is, healing thousands, and these religious leaders, this crack team sent from Jerusalem, are concerned with hand washing before meals. Maybe they are the ones from which the saying originated, cleanliness is next to godliness. I mean, what does washing my hands before I eat have to do with anything? Is this really the best this elite team of religious teachers could come up with to stop Jesus? Jesus? Let me picture it for a moment. They're coming up from Jerusalem, heading north, a day or two's journey. I mean, these are, these are lawyers and theologians. What do we know about lawyers and theologians? They like to talk, they like to debate, they like to argue. And so you can picture them running arguments past one another, talking to one another, saying, let's try this out for size, and playing the antagonist and the protagonist, trying to confound one another. Where can we get him? And then someone says, out of the group, probably from the back, they don't wash their hands before they eat. And everyone says, aha, we have them now. They're excited. They think they're going to make quick work of Jesus and put an end to his influence. Now notice this too. They say, according to the tradition of the elders. What does that mean? Well, the religious leaders had a great body of established oral teaching that commented on, interpreted, and sought to avoid violating the Old Testament and its many commandments. This not washing the hands then is not a reference to personal hygiene, but a reference to ceremonial washing. It has to do, and we know this, it has to do with the religiosity, the sincerity of the religious worship of Judaism. The religious leaders, particularly the Pharisees, saw this largely oral tradition as nearly equal with the Old Testament. It later was codified and came to be known as the Mishnah, about 150 years after Christ. And in the final codified form, there's an entire tractate or section dealing with hands and handwashing. And yet, despite all of this emphasis, all of this attention on handwashing, there is no such restriction upon the people of Israel as a whole in the Old Testament, anywhere. There are instructions about hand washing in certain situations, very specific situations, and most of those have to do with the priests, not all, but most of them have to do with the priests. But over time, the religious leaders had extrapolated the Old Testament regulations about washing required for the priests and applied those regulations in some form to the everyday life of all the Jews, all the time. Now we can understand this to some extent. There is a universal human tendency to say more than what God has actually said. It usually makes us feel safer and more secure. It's quite possible this even happened as far back as the Garden of Eden, where when questioned by the serpent, What did Eve say? We may not eat it or even touch it. There's no instruction explicitly stated to to that extent. Maybe there was, maybe it just wasn't recorded. But regardless, there's this universal human tendency to add extra steps, extra requirements, extra barriers to other instruction, specifically when it comes to religion. The Jewish leaders called this creating a wall around the law to make it harder to violate God's law. You had to get over the wall, through the wall, under the wall, before you could even get to a violation of the law. But eventually it became nearly synonymous in their mind with violating the law. And we can recognize how this happens. Man-made practices intended to protect oneself from sin can easily become habits, which in turn becomes tradition. And tradition easily becomes religious standards or dogma or doctrine, which as one commentator noted, is dogma that God never gave and that can threaten to encroach upon and undermine matters on which God has actually spoken. Such is the case here. If we examine our religious practices today, I wonder how many we would find are a result of tradition or habit. Now it doesn't make traditions and habit automatically wrong, I wanna be very clear here. What makes them wrong is when these habits, these traditions or commandments of men are taught as doctrine, when they become thus saith the Lord. When we say that to violate a tradition is to sin. When we do that, we've become like these Pharisees. We can probably think of things that have been taught as Christian duty that were merely tradition. common one in the South is alcohol. It became synonymous with sin to even take a sip of alcohol. I'm not speaking as to whether the wisdom of drinking or not drinking. I'm merely commenting on what Scripture says and doesn't say. In an effort to avoid drunkenness, to avoid the, the obviously, obvious ill effects that can come with consumption of alcohol, it became, don't drink it at all. I understand why. In fact, there may even be some wisdom in that. But eventually it became that the person touching the alcohol was now sinning. Not whether they were actually drinking, getting drunk, dancing, playing cards, you name it, smoking, chewing tobacco, All of these at different times have fallen under the guise of becoming synonymous with sin and violating God's law. Again, I'm not speaking to the wisdom of those things. But what happens, and it starts out slowly, like a sickness that begins as a cough and slowly gets worse and worse. So the more you focus on on these traditions of men, the more these become what you try to obey, the more you forget why you're obeying. The more you forget why it is that I do this thing. It becomes more about not sinning than loving the Lord. Now, it is good to not sin. But it is not good to forget the Lord in the process. That in itself is sin. And so the more we add to, the more rules and regulations we create that are not explicitly commanded in Scripture, the easier it becomes to dampen our love for Christ. I'm not talking about violating one's conscience. I'm talking about forcing upon others as thus saith the Lord our traditions. And that's what these religious leaders have done. They had made it an art form. Over 600 additional laws and regulations and stipulations created this wall around the law for which violation meant ostracizing from the community. When we focus on man-made traditions, however well-intentioned to prevent us from sin, we often miss the motivation behind The action, namely love for God. What we end up with is vain worship and perfunctory works. My focus on these rules takes my focus off of Christ. There's another important note here in this narrative. These religious leaders had to resort to the custom of the elders. Why? Because when it came to the instructions of Moses or the prophets... From God, Jesus and his disciples were unassailable. The fact that they had to resort to the custom of the elders indicates that there is no accusation that can be made with regard to violating Old Testament law. So these religious leaders resort to tradition. How will Jesus respond to such a charge? Well, Jesus refuses to even acknowledge the accusation of the religious leaders. He will eventually return to what truly defiles a person in verses 10 through 20. But for now, he sets out to undermine the hypocrisy of these religious leaders and show us what true worship looks like. He goes to the source of their argument. That is the tradition of the elders. And he exposes the rank hypocrisy that exists throughout their tradition of legalism. So in verses 3 through 9, we observe Jesus' answer to religious legalism. Remember that the religious leaders are afraid of Jesus's power and influence, this growing power and influence. They're afraid their control over the people will be disturbed, and their comfortable lifestyles created by feeding off the backs of the people will be affected by his ministry and influence. And they're not wrong. And in fact, what does Jesus do in his response? Even though he sidesteps their attack, he goes after the very thing that they feared. He not only exposes their hypocrisy, but he attacks a significant source of temple revenue, a practice called Corbin. an Aramaic term referring to a temple gift or offering or donation. In fact, this is what Jesus refers to in verse five and in, in Mark 7, 11, in the parallel passage, he even refers to it as korban. It's a gift dedicated to the temple. It was usually a pledge of all of one's wealth to the temple upon one's death. It was really a pledge that you can have everything I have now except for what I need for my own sustenance and I'll preserve it upon my death, transferring it all to the temple. It would be thought of earning greater favor with God, of sacrificing more for God to earn greater favor. False religion always tries to earn its way into heaven, and there's no difference here. Under this practice, you could continue to use your money and possessions for your needs during your life. And understand, this is teaching. This was considered by many to be, if not the same as God's written word, as close to it as you could get. You could continue to use your money and possessions for your needs during your life, but at your death, it all passed to the temple and used by the religious establishment. And because it was pledged, because it was vowed, which, by the way, we've heard about vows, haven't we, in the Sermon on the Mount? Because it was pledged, it could not be used for any other purpose. Not even the care of another. Not even the care of a family member. Not even your own parents. So even if your parents were starving to death, you could not provide for them out of your wealth. However little or much that may be. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this violates an Old Testament commandment. In fact, it's a pretty well-known one. It's in one of those Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, honor your father and mother. As Deuteronomy says in Deuteronomy 27, 16, if you do not honor your father and mother, you're worthy of death. And as one commentator notes, Jewish tradition condoned this practice, maintaining that people who gave such gifts to the temple, they were, and they explicitly said this, they were exempt from the obligation to help their parents. Following this man-made tradition meant I no longer had to follow the law of God. I was exempt from it. Such donors, according to Jewish tradition, did not have to obey the fourth commandment by honoring their father and mother. Hopefully it upsets you as much as it does me. It upset Jesus that day. Jesus says that Isaiah prophesied rightly of these religious leaders. That is, they are identical to those religious leaders against whom Isaiah prophesied so many years ago who were the cause for Israel's exile and destruction. Like the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day, those Old Testament religious leaders abused the people, taking advantage of them teaching man-made commandments as if they were God's instructions, leading them into sin in a greater way and profiting off of them. The result was that the religious leaders, both of Isaiah's day and Jesus' day, are like whitewashed tombs. Think about that imagery for a minute. Stop and think about that. What is a tomb? What is it filled with? Death, decay, rotting, putrefaction. So what's the point of a whitewashed? to forget how ugly it is on the inside. Clean looking on the outside, but full of death and decay on the inside. Their hearts, as the prophet Isaiah says, are far from God, despite their appearance of spirituality. What undergirds Jesus' response, including his quotation of Isaiah, is a principle from the Old Testament which Jesus has already explained at least two other times. On two separate occasions, he's already Dealt with this. But now these religious leaders from Jerusalem need to hear this message. We read in Matthew 9:13, go and learn what it means. I desire compassion, that is loyal love, chesed from the Old Testament, and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And again in Matthew 12:7, Jesus says to the religious leaders: But if you had known what it means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. That is, I desired loyal love, faithful love, loving kindness. You would not have condemned the innocent. This is a quote from Hosea 6.6, which is itself a quote from 1 Samuel 15, 20-23, which is itself a wonderful parallel to this whole section, where you have Saul the king decide to do and decide to worship God other than how he said he was to be worshipped. It spared Agag, spared some of the cattle. Oh, but it's okay, Lord. It's for you. I spared it so they could give it as an offering. The kingdom was ripped from his hand that day because God desires loyal love and a heart of obedience rather than these actions and these deeds that are far from him. It's not the doing of more religious practices that God desires. It is not adding to those 600 plus laws that God desires. It is not more, a greater, a taller, a thicker wall around the law that God requires. It is this loyal love Does God require obedience? Absolutely. But only obedience done out of love, not out of ritualistic tradition that seeks to check off a list. Now I could stop there. There's a lot of truth in what's been said. There's already a lot of application. But if I stop there, I do you a disservice because that is too abstract. If I'm to obey, but I'm only to obey when I love God What am I supposed to do? Stop doing anything good until I feel this love? How do I love God? How how do I love God in my obedience? How do I make sure that my actions are done out of love? It's an important question. Because some have gone so far as to say, yes, stop, stop even teaching obedience to God. Instead, let's focus on just loving God. Others out of fear of sin have gone the other direction. Having a misunderstanding of who God is and focused so much on the legalism and the tradition, they've forgotten to love God. So how do we do this? Well, you don't start by focusing on the action. If I want to love my wife, if I want to show love for a person who is dear to me, Do I focus on the actions? Or do I spend time studying that person? How can I please that person? What is it that makes them tick? What is it that brings a smile to their face? What is it that communicates without words that I love you? Well, how do you do that with God? How do you do that with the King of Heaven? Well, He's drawn near to us. He's drawn near to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's drawn near in the Old Testament. He's drawn near in the New, and he's taught us how to draw near to him. And so we study him, like the psalmist did, who came to know the heart of God. We study his character. We study his attributes. If you really want to get to know who God is, you've got to study your Old Testament. Because so much about God is revealed. And you're in for a surprise if you haven't studied it a lot. Because it's not all about wrath. It's not all about genocide of an ungodly people. It is about a loving God. A compassionate God. A God who cares. And a God who has always been in the work of saving sinners. And as you study this God. As you draw near to Him as you pray to him, as you commune with him, you develop a love for him. When you were dating your spouse, when you were getting to know them, maybe it was a best friend, did your love grow warmer the longer you were apart from one another? There's the saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder, but does it really help me to love someone more? It doesn't, does it? You crave to be close because that's Where the love grows, that's where it's cultivated. In fact, you do in that absence everything you can to have a semblance of nearness. You write to one another, you call to one another. We can video one another, why? Because we wanna be near one another. Because we know that's where love grows. So draw near to Christ and he will draw near to you. If you do not know Christ, and by that I mean that you enjoy your sin and you enjoy it too much. When you wake up in the morning, you cannot say what pleases the Lord that you wake up and you have to say what pleases me. That's your nature. That's where you live. But if that is you, I beg and I plead with you to see Christ. To understand that that love for sin, it's like drinking salt water while you're thirsting to death. It will kill you Instead, turn to the one who grants living water so that you would never thirst again. Turn to Christ. Study him. See him. Pray to him. Call to him. There is no one he will turn away. Pray that he would help you to see your sin for what it is, to feel the weight of it, to understand that your sin condemns you to hell under the wrath of God. But God desires to save you from himself. We don't stop obeying, we don't stop doing what God has called us to do, but we do it with an attention and a focus on God. That's how we please Him, that's how we love Him. The answer to avoiding loveless legalism is to cultivate a love for God and a knowledge of God that leads to wanting to please Him. It comes through study of His Word, it comes through prayer, And it comes from simply, step by step, doing what he has revealed to us. You know what the amazing thing is? He's actually prepared works that we should walk in them. Ephesians talks about this. Paul writes, saying in Ephesians 2.10, we're to be busy doing the works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But he wants you to walk with a warmth and an affection for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the lesson that is gleaned this morning. We thank you for the rebuke that was offered to those religious leaders, for the unveiling of the legalism and the tradition of men and its damaging and damning influence. Father, help us to see you. Help us to love you. Let us be eager and diligent to obey you. But again, not so that we can check off the list, but so we can embrace you greater. Pray this in your name. Amen.